Good Sunday morning. Rashini Rajkumar here along with Dr. David Hilden. We have a very important topic today. But first, Dr. Hilden, a bit of congratulations in order. Really? Good morning, Rashini. I don't know what you're talking about. Good morning. Well, it appears, uh, maybe they didn't let you know yet, that you and three of your colleagues, uh, CEO Jennifer DeCubilis, Dr. John Hick, and Dr. Mark Linzer, Linzer, were recently selected as four of Minnesota's 100 most influential healthcare leaders by Minnesota Physician Publications. Well, thank you very much. I did hear about that, that uh, I'm humbled about that. Uh, I I think that um, the fact that I get the privilege of talking to tens of thousands of people every Sunday morning with you, I think that uh, um, uh, the, the Minnesota physician um, recognized that as, as uh, uh, perhaps something that was of some value to people. So I'm humbled to receive that. My colleagues there, our CEO, Jennifer, is an outstanding healthcare leader, and um, John Hick, who has been directing, literally directing, our statewide emergency response to the pandemic, and he's based out of Hennepin. And then my good friend Mark Linzer is one of my mentors and an outstanding general internist who works on healthcare workers and their well-being, which is a topic that is um, really important to us. So thank you for that recognition. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, all of us at News Talk 830 WCCO applaud you. And I think what's really cool about this uh, award and recognition is that they look at Minnesota Physician Publications look at clinical care to healthcare policy to administration and management. So it's covering the gamut. And I think regular people, we lay people, don't always understand that it's not just about one of those things. All of those things have to be in sync for patients to get the best care. Indeed, we, and that's how it is. Um, what, well, the, the people that really impress me that I never really thought of much more unless I was trying to get a package from UPS is the logistics people. That's they're, they're probably as important, if not more important, than anybody right now, is, is people with skills at, at planning and supply chains and organizing. Um, that's where we are, like, for instance, with our vaccines right now. It's the logistics people that are going to deliver us through this thing, literally deliver us. And so you're right. It's administrators and it's frontline healthcare workers and it's, it's just a whole variety of people that work in healthcare. Um, so uh, I was humbled to receive that. Well, congratulations, and you definitely had our vote, not that we had any say in it. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to talk about colorectal health, which is such an important topic, not a sexy topic at all, but really important. It really is. Um, we're going to have a repeat guest with me after the break. We'll introduce my guest, who is Dr. Jake Matlock, the, the director of our Division of Gastroenterology. But it is one of the I, – I'll, let me just preface it with this. I one time asked one of my colleagues who worked in gastroenterology, who is otherwise known as a GI doctor, gastrointestinal, your intestinal doctors. I said, why the heck did you want to go into that? You could have done something like sexier. I mean you, you didn't have to look you know, in people's intestines all day long. And they, they told me, oh, yeah, but if you can help somebody with their intestinal problems, you are a hero for them. I'm paraphrasing. That isn't what this person said. But they said it's very satisfying to um, – and it is very, very common for people to have intestinal issues. And to have somebody who can help you out with those can literally make people's lives better and literally saves lives. So that's why this person said I went into GI medicine. And we're going to talk to one of my um, one of the guys that I would consider one of the best GI doctors in this region, um, Dr. Matlock. He's going. To, we're going to talk a little bit about colon cancer, 
and specifically, how do you detect it and why do you have to get that colonoscopy and are there any other options? We're going to talk to the guy who's at the other end of the colonoscope. You're at the business end. He's at the other end. And we're going to talk about other things, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, um, other things that might be bothering people with their intestines. So I'm looking forward to the show today. Yeah, when we have a lot uh, of content for people, phone lines will be open, 651-989-9226. And as always, I promise I will get to you if you call. I will try to get to you if you text us, but the number is good for both. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have, of course, more with Dr. Hilden, and he'll introduce us to our guest, Dr. Jake Matlock. That's what I love about Sunday. Sing along as the choir sways. Every verse of amazing grace. And we are back on Healthy Matters with your host, Dr. David Hilden, and me, Rashini Rajkumar. And today we're talking colorectal health. I got a text asking, what's wrong with texts? Nothing is wrong with texts. We get so many of them that we don't always get to them. So we've sort of made it a, a rule since October that if you call us, we promise we'll get to you. We will do our very best to get to you if you text. And that's just because of the sheer volume. We are certainly not ignoring them. Dr. Hilden, I'll let you take it away with our guest. Thanks, Rashini. I have Dr. Jake Matlock with us uh, on the show. He's a repeat guest. Dr. Matlock specializes in disorders of the gastrointestinal tract, liver, and pancreas. Um, Just a little bit of a blurb about Jake. I've known him since we did residency together back about 20 years ago at HCMC. Prior to residency, he did his medical school at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Then he came north to us and did his fellowship at the University of Minnesota, and he is the director of our division of gastroenterology at Hennepin. Jake, good to, good to have you on the show. Thanks for being here on a Sunday morning. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here with you. Let's talk about your GI health today. Um, and and I, I have to tell you, I'm a, it's a little bit of a, a relief for me to talk about something other than COVID, and, <laughs> because that's what we talk about a ton lately. So let's talk about GI health. What are... Um, what was your message to people? I want to start out with colon cancer. What is your message to people about colon cancer and what they need to know? What are the big things they need to know about getting checked for colon cancer? Well, the, the biggest message that I think we struggle to deliver to people and, and to make people understand is that colon cancer is a big deal for everyone. Uh, it, it is the third leading cause of cancer for both men and women in this country. And with appropriate screening, it is not 100% preventable, but it is awfully close to that. And so the the second major message that we try to, to get across to folks is you'll be presented with a lot of different options by your, your healthcare provider for how you might go about doing colon cancer screening. The most important thing is that you do one, not, not that you choose any particular strategy, but that you do something. When do you, that, I, I think you maybe told me that some years ago, maybe it was even on this show, that you said the best colon cancer screening is the one you're going to actually do. If you don't do anything, it isn't going to help you. Talk to us if you could. What, we all know about the colonoscopy, or we've, we have all heard of it maybe. Could you talk about the various uh, types of colon cancer screening, including colonoscopy? Sure. I, the colonoscopy is certainly the most uh, widely publicized method for colon cancer screening, and it is often, uh, I think by most of us, considered the gold standard test, meaning it's it's the one that 
uh, all others get compared to as as the, 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 the top of the charts, so to speak. Uh, it has some advantages over other screening tests in that it allows us not only to get a direct look at a person's entire colon, but also uh, if we do see any precancerous changes, which are called polyps, we have the ability to take them out during the test and prevent their development into a colon cancer. So it is not only a screening test, it is also a prevention tool. The so you're the guy who does it. Let me, let me jump in there. You're the guy who do, does colonoscopy. What does a polyp look like to you when you're looking at this thing? What so is a polyp? They vary. Um, the classic polyp is, is something that looks a little bit like a mushroom on a stalk. It's got a, 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 a a stalk or a trunk to it and a little head on the top. They're fairly obvious. Uh, once you've seen a few of them, those are hard to miss. Uh, there are other types of polyps that are considerably more subtle. Uh, they are uh, textural changes in the lining of the colon uh, whose borders can be a little bit tricky to recognize. So seeing where they begin and where the normal tissue ends can be uh, quite a challenge. Um, we're fortunate that the optics and lighting in, in the uh, technology has come a long way, even during the uh, period of my career, uh, so that we can more effectively detect those subtle polyps uh, than we used to. So the, the thing that, you know, I've had my colonoscopy, that's more than people want to know, but there you go. Um, uh, it, you know, and, and I like to tell people that it isn't, you know, and I, I hate to minimize things because people have some anxieties and some nervousness about getting these things done. So I don't want to minimize, but for me, it was, it was not, not a problem in the slightest. Tell us about what could, what the experience is like when people get a colonoscopy. What does, you know, what can they expect afterwards? What can they expect to prep for it? And, and what are the risks of it? So I, I think you bring up an excellent point. Dave, that, that it is normal for a person to have some anxiety around colonoscopy, particularly the first time you do it. Uh, I consider it a very important part of my job to make sure that if someone comes to me for a colonoscopy or anyone in our group, that, that they are not nervous the next time. And so we struggle to make that experience a non-event. Now, are we 100% successful? No. You know, as you mentioned, there are things that can go wrong during a colonoscopy. They are fortunately quite rare. Uh, the removal of polyps can lead to bleeding in the colon. Uh, that, that is about a 1 in 500 to 1 in 1,000 event when we remove polyps, depending on, on how big they are and so forth. Um, it is thankfully extremely rare for us to do permanent harm to the colon by poking a hole in it. That's a one in five to 10,000 type of event. But most of the time, what people experience is that they uh, get some medications to relax them. They either uh, are relaxed and not really caring what's going on, or they're completely asleep uh, for the procedure. And they uh, either watch along with us, uh, depending on their preference, or go to sleep and wake up and it's over. Uh, that's, that's what we're hoping for, and that's, uh, that's what we thankfully are able to achieve in most people. That was, that was how it was for me. I did, I did mine at, at Hennepin and it was some of my own colleagues doing it. And the nurse looks at me and, and 
I said, oh, I'm going to watch along with you. And I'm looking at the monitor and I'm watching my own colon. And I said, I'm, I'm going to be unlike other people. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to watch my own colonoscopy. And then the next thing I know, I was waking up and they were saying, yep, it's all done. <laughs> I, I was not aware of any of it when I had mine done. Um, let's talk about other kinds of colon cancer screening, Dr. Matlock. What else can you do if you're just if a colonoscopy isn't right for you? So most of the other commonly used screening modalities involve uh, doing stool samples to check for either blood or genetic markers in the stool that signal some sort of change in the cells or tissue that lines the colon. And they, there are a variety of different proprietary uh, uh, tests that are out there, but they all boil down to that simple concept that you're looking for uh, changes in the, the shed lining from the colon that indicate that some precancerous change has occurred. Uh, the obvious advantage to those tests is that they are uh, non-invasive, so a lot of people uh, are drawn to them for that reason. One of the critical uh, pieces of information to keep in mind about them is that they are only uh, tested and validated for people who are at what is termed average risk, meaning people who don't have a personal history or a family history of colorectal cancer and people who are not having colon-related symptoms. So it's only for those who are asymptomatic, truly just in need of a screening exam. So in our last, we're going to take a break shortly, but in our last 30 seconds here, at what time do you start? At what age do you start looking for, the, for colon cancer? So there's been a recent shift uh, in that uh, starting point. We used to tell people to start at 50 if they were average risk. Uh, now we, the guideline has shifted so that most societies are now recommending that you start at 45, so it's shifted younger. And obviously that is, again, influenced by what your own personal and family history is with regard to colon and rectal health. All right. We've got lots of questions coming in. Of course, phone lines are open, as are the text line 651-989-9226. We're talking colorectal health today. The very last part of the show, we'll get to some questions that are coming in about COVID. But if you have a call about that, save it until around 645. We'll be right back with Healthy Matters. And we are back on Healthy Matters with your host, Dr. David Hilden, and me, Rashini Rajkumar. And today we're talking colorectal health. I got a text asking, what's wrong with texts? Nothing is wrong with texts. We get so many of them that we don't always get to them. So we've sort of made it a, a rule since October that if you call us, we promise we'll get to you. We will do our very best to get to you if you text. And that's just because of the sheer volume. We are certainly not ignoring them. Dr. Hilden, I'll let you take it away with our guest. 
Thanks, Rashini. I have Dr. Jake Matlock with us uh, on the show. He's a repeat guest. Dr. Matlock specializes in disorders of the gastrointestinal tract, liver, and pancreas. Um, I'll just a little bit of a blurb about Jake. I've known him since we did residency together back about 20 years ago at HCMC. Prior to residency, he did his medical school at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Then he came north to us and did his fellowship at the University of Minnesota, and he is the director of our division of gastroenterology at Hennepin. Jake, good to, good to have you on the show. Thanks for being here on a Sunday morning. Thanks so much, David. It's great to be here with you. Let's talk about your GI health today. Um, and and I, I have to tell you, it's a little bit of a, a relief for me to talk about something other than COVID, and, <laughs> because that's what we talk about a ton lately. So let's talk about GI health. What are... Um, what was your message to people? I want to start out with colon cancer. What is your message to people about colon cancer and what they need to know? What are the big things they need to know about getting checked for colon cancer? Well, the, the biggest message that I think we struggle to deliver to people and, and to make people understand is that colon cancer is a big deal for everyone. Uh, it, it is the third leading cause of cancer for both men and women in this country. And with appropriate screening, it is not 100% preventable, but it is awfully close to that. And so the the second major message that we try to, to get across to folks is you'll be presented with a lot of different options by your, your healthcare provider for how you might go about doing colon cancer screening. The most important thing is that you do one, not, not that you choose any particular strategy, but that you do something. When do you, that I, I think you maybe told me that some years ago. Maybe it was even on this show that you said the best colon cancer screening is the one you're going to actually do. If you don't do anything, it isn't going to help you. Talk to us if you could. What we all know about the colonoscopy, or we've we have all heard of it. Maybe could you talk about the various uh, types of colon cancer screening, including colonoscopy? Sure. I, the colonoscopy is certainly the most uh, widely publicized method for colon cancer screening, and it is often, uh, I think by most of us, considered the gold standard test, meaning it's, it's the one that uh, all others get compared to as, as uh, the, the, the top of the charts, so to speak. Uh, it has some advantages over other screening tests in that it allows us not only to get a direct look at a person's entire colon, but also uh, if we do see any precancerous changes, which are called polyps, we have the ability to take them out during the test and prevent their development into a colon cancer. So it is not only a screening test, it is also a prevention tool. The, so you're the guy who does it. Let me, let me jump in. There. You're the guy who does colonoscopy. What does a polyp look like to you when you're looking at this thing? What so is a polyp? They vary. Um, the classic polyp is, is something that looks a little bit like a mushroom on a stalk. It's got a, 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 a stalk or a trunk to it and a little head on the top. They're fairly obvious. Uh, once you've seen a few of them, those are hard to miss. Uh, there are other types of polyps that are considerably more subtle. Uh, they are uh, textural changes in the lining of the colon. Uh, whose borders can be a little bit tricky to recognize. So seeing where they begin and where the normal tissue ends can be uh, quite a challenge. 
Uh, we're fortunate that the optics and lighting and, and the uh, technology has come a long way, even during the uh, period of my career, uh, so that we can more effectively detect those subtle polyps uh, than we used to. So the the thing that, you know, I've had my colonoscopy, that's more than people want to know, but there you go. Um, uh, it, you know, and, and I like to tell people that it isn't, you know, and I, I hate to minimize things because people have some anxieties and some nervousness about getting these things done. So I don't want to minimize, but for me, it was, it was not, not a problem in the slightest. Tell us about what could, what the experience is like when people get a colonoscopy. What does, you know, what can they expect afterwards? What can they expect to prep for it? And, and what are the risks of it? So I, I think you bring up an excellent point, Dave, that, that it is normal for a person to have some anxiety around colonoscopy, particularly the first time you do it. Uh, I consider it a very important part of my job to make sure that if someone comes to me for a colonoscopy or anyone in our group, that, that they are not nervous the next time. And so we struggle to make that experience a non-event. Now, are we 100% successful? No. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, there are things that can go wrong during a colonoscopy. They are fortunately quite rare. Uh, the removal of polyps can lead to bleeding in the colon. Uh, that, that is about a 1 in 500 to 1 in 1,000 event when we remove polyps, depending on, on how big they are and so forth. Um, it is thankfully extremely rare for us to do permanent harm to the colon by poking a hole in it. That's a one in five to 10,000 type of event. But most of the time, what people experience is that they uh, get some medications to relax them. They either uh, are relaxed and not really caring what's going on, or they're completely asleep uh, for the procedure. And they, uh, either watch along with us, uh, depending on their preference, or go to sleep and wake up and it's over. Uh, that's, that's what we're hoping for, and that's, uh, that's what we thankfully are able to achieve in most people. That was that was how it was for me. I did, I did mine at, at Hennepin, and it was some of my own colleagues doing it, and the nurse looks at me, and, and I said, oh, I'm going to watch along with you, and I'm looking at the monitor, and I'm watching my own colon, and I said, I'm, I'm going to be unlike other people. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to watch my own colonoscopy, and then the next thing I know, I was waking up, and they were saying, yep, it's all done. <laughs> I, I was not aware of any of it when I had mine done. Um, let's talk about other kinds of colon cancer screening, Dr. Matlock. What else can you do if you're just if a colonoscopy isn't right for you? So most of the other commonly used screening modalities involve uh, doing stool samples to check for either blood or genetic markers in the stool that signal some sort of change in the cells or tissue that lines the colon. And they, there are a variety of different proprietary uh, uh, tests that are out there, but they all boil down to that simple concept that you're looking for uh, changes in the, the shed lining from the colon that indicate that some precancerous change has occurred. Uh, the obvious advantage to those tests is that they are uh, non-invasive, so a lot of people uh, are drawn to them for that reason. One of the critical uh, pieces of information to keep in mind about them is that they are only 
tested and validated for people who are at what is termed average risk, meaning people who don't have a personal history or a family history of colorectal cancer and people who are not having colon-related symptoms. So it's only for those who are asymptomatic, truly just in need of a screening exam. So in our last, we're going to take a break shortly, but in our last 30 seconds here, at what time do you start? At what age do you start looking for the, for colon cancer? So there's been a recent shift uh, in that uh, starting point. We used to tell people to start at 50 if they were average risk. Uh, now we, the guideline has shifted so that most societies are now recommending that you start at 45, so it's shifted younger. And obviously that is, again, influenced by what your own personal and family history is with regard to colon and rectal health. All right. We've got lots of questions coming in. Of course, phone lines are open, as are the text line, 651-989-9226. We're talking colorectal health today. The very last part of the show, we'll get to some questions that are coming in about COVID. But if you have a call about that, save it until around 645. We'll be right back with Healthy Matters. It is Sunday morning, and you know what that means, Healthy Matters with Dr. David Hilden. I'm Rashini Rajkumar, his co-host, and today we're talking with Dr. Jack, Jake Matlock. He specializes in disorders of the gastrointestinal tract, liver, and pancreas. Very serious stuff. Phone and text lines are open. Give us a call. Give us a text. 651-989-9226. Doctors, is there anything you wanted to say before we get into these texts? Because we have a lot of them. Well, you know what, Machini? Maybe we should go to listener calls. I have a whole bunch of things I could talk to Dr. Matlock about, but I think what we'll do is well, let's let listeners drive it. What, what are, what's on people's minds? All right, we've got a lot here. Let's start with this one. Please discuss pros and cons of Cologuard test to a colonoscopy. I want to try Cologuard uh, as I hate the prep for a colonoscopy. And I know you all were getting into this, but because they asked this question, let's get a little more detailed here. So I, I think that that's an excellent question. Cologuard is uh, one of the stool tests that is out there on the market uh, to screen for colorectal cancer. Uh, it does involve collecting a stool sample. The company will send you a special collection kit that you use to collect it and mail it off. They are looking for a variety of uh, changes in the DNA of the, the shed colon lining uh, that might indicate precancerous or cancerous changes in that lining. The Cologuard is, uh, again, quite nice because it's uh, a non-invasive test. Uh, not, most of us are, don't relish the idea of collecting our own stool sample, but it's certainly less invasive than a, a colonoscopy. Uh, it is uh, definitely the, a very effective tool uh, for screening for colon cancer. Uh, it is one that, if positive, uh, if you do get a positive Cologuard test, the recommended follow-up is to then get a colonoscopy to look for any polyps that might have triggered that positive test and get those removed. Uh, but for those who have negative tests, it does get you a, a, a couple of years. I think the current guideline is between two and three years before you need to repeat it. Uh, so that's uh, certainly a, a an advantage there. Uh, again, the important thing to remember about the Cologuard test is that it's only validated for people who are at average risk. So 
If you have a personal history of polyps, uh, if you have a personal history of colon cancer, or if you have a strong family history uh, of colon cancer, it is probably not the right test for you. Now that may change going forward. Uh, certainly the, the um, uh, push is to try to get these tests validated uh, and prove that they are effective for other populations, but right now uh, it is strictly for that average risk person. Okay, Dr. Hilton, do you want to add anything to that? No, um, I, I, uh, I, my only um, comment on that is to go back to what we said earlier. If you are not going to get your colonoscopy, you know, because it's just for whatever reason, first of all, I would encourage you to talk to other people about it. Um, talk to people who you know who've had one. Talk to your loved ones who've had one. Talk to your doctor so that your an your questions are answered. Because if, if you're not at just average risk, um, most people should probably be getting your colonoscopy. Um, but if, if but there are other options. So get the, if, if the Cologuard's the one for you, go for it. But just make sure you do something, particularly if you're at age 45 or older. Okay, now we're getting some questions on numbers of polyps. This person says, what is the average number of polyps found in a colonoscopy? Is seven, ranging in size from small to medium, unusual? What might that mean? So in somebody who is at average risk coming in for their, their screening colonoscopy, we expect to find at least one polyp in somewhere between 30 and 40% of people. Uh, that's unsurprising. So uh, I, I often tell people before we start that I'm not surprised if we find polyps in your colon. I'm also not surprised if we don't uh, because, again, about ballpark, a third of people will have them and two-thirds will not. Of those who do have them, um, uh, roughly a third of them will have more than one. And so, you know, if you if you're a better mathematician than I am, you can in your head figure out that that's about 10% of people roughly will have more than one polyp. Uh, once you get beyond the, the more than one, if you try to start parsing, you know, how many people will have three versus four versus seven, uh, it's, it's really hard to pin those numbers down. Uh, if I see someone who has seven polyps or eight, I, I will probably recommend that they come back at a shorter interval for their next colonoscopy uh, to make sure that they haven't made more and, and to ensure that if they do make more that we get them out. Uh, what I would suggest to, to someone who has really any number of polyps is that the important thing is not uh, so much how many you have. Obviously there are some limits to that, but, but rather that you continue to come back in for regular follow-up to get any new ones harvested out. It's kind of like getting the oil changed on your car. As long as you do it on a regular basis, uh, you don't need to worry about it in between. But if you skip it, it'll come back and bite you. All right, more on kind of numbers and types here. Uh, I've been advised to have a colonoscopy every year. Nine polyps developed in year previous to colonoscopy last fall. Four were precancerous. Is a year between procedures often enough? My dad died of colon cancer. So that, that highlights the, the concept that if a person has multiple polyps in their colon, we do often recommend that they come back more often. Uh, so people with either no polyps or just a few small polyps 
uh, guidelines allow uh, allow folks to go now uh, between seven and ten years between colonoscopy uh, as a person has more or larger polyps or polyps that that look uh, a little bit more advanced under the microscope that interval shortens to three years or five years and then for for a few people those who have uh, strong family history such as this person and uh, large numbers of polyps found in the in their colonoscopies, we do recommend shorter intervals, uh, such as a year. It's really uncommon for someone to have colonoscopies more often than once a year. Uh, the rate at which polyps develop is slow enough that looking more often than that really doesn't provide a whole lot of benefit because we haven't given enough time for new ones to grow to a size where we can actually see them. And so a, a, a yearly colonoscopy uh, uh, for someone who is a, an aggressive polyp former uh, is, is very good protection against the development of colon cancer. Jake, when do you get to stop getting these uh, done? When's your last colonoscopy? Well, guidelines currently suggest that it is probably safe to start talking about stopping for most people around the age of 75. Some guidelines say as late as 80 think that that is a broad guideline and really the individual should discuss it with their own health care provider is what we're trying to balance are what are the risks of doing the procedure as as one gets older or as one gets other health conditions and I think that that for me is the more important issue is is not so much your age but what other health conditions do you have that might impact the risk from the procedure and we also are trying to keep in mind that the horizon of benefit for the procedure is actually several years down the road. If I take a polyp out of your colon today, I'm not protecting you from something bad next week. I'm protecting you from something bad several years in the future. And as much as we don't like to think about it, for all of us, several years in the future at some point ceases to be an important time frame for consideration. So that, that decision about when it, it might be safe to stop really depends on a lot of your own personal uh, health factors, and, and that's, that's something that you should definitely discuss with your doctor along the way because it's not something that you need to do uh, you know, for most people when you're in your late 90s and, and, and if you've never had a polyp in your life and, and, and you've made it this far, you, you could probably quit. <laughs> All right, Dr. Jake Matlock is a gastrointestinal specialist, of course. He is with our host, Dr. David Hilden. We have only a couple minutes. I want to get through a lot of these texts because you're getting a lot of them. So maybe we can get through those quickly before we have to go to break. Related to that age question, Dr. Matlock, this person's wondering if maternal and paternal family history adjusts what you just advised. It, it definitely does. Uh, the, the guidelines uh, surrounding screening for people with a family history of colon cancer or colon polyps are uh, somewhat arcane in their details, but the short version is that if you have a family history on either side of your family of colon cancer or colon polyps, particularly if those uh, things occurred before the age of 60, you should talk to your doctor about whether or not early screening is appropriate for you. And when that early screening occurs does depend to some degree on how many relatives and at what age, but uh, for most people, uh, you're looking at starting at 40 or younger 
if uh, you have a, a strong family history. This listener is hoping you can explain the two kinds of polyps that are commonly removed. They say they had a, a few the doctor did not explain very well. So the, the two broad categories uh, of polyps are hyperplastic polyps and adenomas. There are a bunch of subdivisions that I, I think are probably, I won't bore people with, but those two broad types of polyps uh, are important to distinguish between because one of them, the hyperplastic polyps, are, are harmless. They are like having freckles in your colon, so they do not pose a risk of colon cancer in the future. The other adenomas are the type that do, over time, grow and eventually develop into colon cancer if they are not removed. When we do a colonoscopy, particularly for smaller polyps, it can be difficult to tell which we're looking at just on visual inspection. And so the usual practice is to take all polyps out. And then we send them down for biopsy and, and the pathologists, the folks who look at the slides, look at the biopsy specimens under the microscope, they'll tell me what type of polyp it was. And that, that appearance under the microscope will then help me to determine what, what the appropriate recommendation is for somebody about their risk and when they should come back. In either oh. case, the polyp is gone, so the risk right. of that polyp is over. All right, Dr. Matlock, uh, I want to remind people our phone number, 651-989-9226. When we come back from break, we'll also cover some COVID topics with you. You can text or call us. In about 10 seconds or less, I want to do this last question from the listeners. What if someone has mobility issues? How do they prepare for a colonoscopy if they have problems getting to the bathroom? So we actually run a clinic at Hennepin for folks who have challenges with the colonoscopy prep of any sort. And for most people, if we sit down and talk through what the specific barriers are, we can figure out a strategy to get them through the prep. And, and, and that's, that's something I would strongly recommend if you're concerned about it. Sit down and talk to one of us because we can usually figure it out with you. All right, Dr. Jake Matlock, one of the fabulous doctors at Hennepin Health. He's a gastrointestinal specialist. And at the end of the show, Dr. Hilden will remind us how to get in touch with all of the docs over there. Thank you so much, Dr. Matlock. We'll take a quick break. Your calls and texts on COVID and some colonoscopy issues. When we come back, 651-989-9226. We are back, Rashini Rajkumar and Dr. David Hilden. Hosting Healthy Matters this morning, presented by Hennepin Healthcare. We will get to, if we can, we'll get back to some colorectal health questions. But there were so many questions being called and texted in about COVID. We're returning to that just for a couple minutes here. Dick is on the line from Fergus Falls. Hi there, Dick. Good morning. Thank you. Just a question about what's happening in uh, Southern California, why and what's happening there, and more pointedly, does that mean that we may see a surge like that in the coming weeks in the uh, Minnesota Midwest part of the country? Hi, Dick. Uh, the, I have friends in Southern California. I have one particularly in Orange County, and they call me in horror of what's going on in Los Angeles and the surrounding areas. So one person every eight minutes is dying of COVID in Los Angeles, and they're putting people in the hallways of their hospitals, and they are staying in those hallways for seven days. They wait seven days 
for a bed in the hospital. And the staff is literally just running on fumes. Whether we're going to get it here, I don't know. I hope not. Um, we had a similar, we've had really two big surges here, the one in the springtime and then the one in, in November. Um, we are at a little bit of a lull here, but this is how this thing works. It kind of comes and goes. We're a little bit nervous about February um, because of the increase in cases uh, over the last week. But we, to be honest, we never got as bad as Los Angeles is now. Los Angeles is more likely what is, is what's is more similar to what New York was like. And so my friend in Orange County also tells me rarely does she see people wearing a mask. And so that's why, right there, that is why it's so bad in Los Angeles. And we're, we have about a 90% uptake in mask wearing in Minnesota. That's why we're not so bad here. So that's my message to folks. You have to do your social distancing. You have to do your mask wearing, and you have to wash your hands a lot. The last thing is, um, is that if we do those three things, the vaccine will come, and then we'll be, um, we should be good by this summer. All right, Dr. Hilden, the Minnesota Department of Health confirmed a new strain of coronavirus that showed up in Minnesota. What can you tell us about that? Viruses really do mutate all the time. So this is not in the slightest bit unexpected that we'll have variants of it. The one that most people are thinking about is the B117, which is what was in uh, Great Britain. And um, that one seems to be um, a little bit more transmissible. In other words, that one will trans, you can give it to other people more readily than the other variant, the earlier variant of COVID. So that is not unexpected. Um, the good news is it doesn't appear to be more virulent. In other words, it doesn't make you any sicker than the old variant did. The other piece of good news is that the vaccine appears to be, at least in preliminary data, highly effective against it. So the strong message that people should know about the new variant is that it's easier to pass it on. So you should double down on your efforts to not pass it on. If you are anywhere near another human being that doesn't live with you, I can't make it any more clear than that. If the person doesn't live in your house, then you need to be six feet away from them. You need to be wearing a mask and you need to be not touching them. Um, that variant passes more readily. I don't want people to worry about it. Just keep doing the things that we do now and, and we'll get through it. All right. This listener is wondering who should not get the COVID vaccination? And also, is it okay if you're pregnant or breastfeeding? Who should not is a, is a relatively easy one. I can't think of too many people. Um, there are, um, even if you have allergies, if you get bee sting allergies, it's been okay. Um, the people that, sh so if it's your turn, if you're in the group that the current, the, the public health departments are currently vaccinating, you should get it. Perhaps if you had an extreme anaphylactic reaction, a life-threatening reaction to something in the past, you might want to think twice. But other kinds of allergic reactions don't seem to be a problem. Just about everybody else should be getting the vaccine. Um, as for pregnant and breastfeeding women, that one there is relatively little data on because no studies, at least studies that are in the first year of a vaccine, are done on pregnant people. Who's going to offer up your pregnancy as the one to test it on? So that being said, there is not known to be, there hasn't, we haven't seen any harm. And we're already to millions of people have gotten the vaccine. So most of the experts in child, um, in reproductive health are saying this is a decision between women and their doctors. It's a personal decision. We don't have any data that it's particularly harmful, but we also have to acknowledge we don't have any data that it's for sure safe. 
And so um, that is an individual decision. Most of my physician colleagues who are pregnant, I have many, I know many, um, chose to get the vaccine. All right, Dr. Hilden, we have about a minute total. Let's quickly get through a couple of texts, and I'd love to get in, Bob, one last question on today's topic, colorectal health. Why can't we ramp up distribution of the vaccine, says one listener? I wish I knew. <laughs> um, uh, it is a logistics thing, and, and I think they are getting up to almost a million a day in the country. Um, uh, I would share that concern. I wish I knew why. Okay, and we'll go back to colorectal health. This person says, my father passed away from pancreatic cancer. Is this genetic? Uh, it, no, we don't have a lot of genetic um, data on pancreatic cancer. Uh, so I won't be able to answer that much more specifically. But if you had anybody with a GI cancer, particularly younger, um, if they were younger, I would for sure talk to your doctor about getting screened earlier. Now, there isn't a screening test for pancreatic cancer, um, but for colon cancer, for sure. Okay, we're going to go to Bob in Elk River. And Bob, if you can keep your question to 10 seconds, we can get in an answer. I went into the ER about a year ago with bloating and uh, shortness of breath. They found my pancreas and liver enzymes elevated, my stomach inflamed. Uh, they put me on an acid reducer for uh, about four months, and uh, that seemed to help. Uh, so All right, we'll get to my... Dr. Hilden's response because we are running up against the clock. you got about eight seconds, Doc. I'm sorry, Bob. Um, all I can say is that bloating can be caused by any number of things, inflammatory bowel disease, cancers, digestive problems. Go see your primary doctor first, and then you can go in. If that's not helpful, you can go into a GI doctor. All right. Wow. What a day. we got open lines next Sunday. Dr. David Hilden and I will be back on Healthy Matters. Same time, same bat place, 7 to 8 a.m. on WCCO Radio.